The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Authority is a concept often viewed with suspicion these days. Sometimes the suspicion is very specific, with a distrust of governmental authority or of that expressed by medical experts or perhaps by law enforcement. Those kinds of specific questions seem pretty prevalent these days. But regardless of what's going on right now, in, in general, there is always some sense in which we are suspicious of those who are in positions of, of authority, because we've seen so many bad examples. People who are not right or are not good or are not wise are just powerful. And they happen to be in charge at the moment. And so how they use that authority is either obviously bad or subject to question. And so we should be suspicious. We should watch. We should withhold full blind trust and fact check and create watchdog agencies, etc. That's, that's necessary. But that creates a problem, of course, because the people questioning authority can then often become authorities themselves, or at least act like it. And they're not right or good or wise either. They're just of a different opinion and have just enough power to challenge. So who's watching the people who are watching the people who are in authority? that gets a little complex and complicated. And so what happens in society either is the most powerful person wins, that's tyranny, or we just say, ah, let's just throw out all sense of authority completely, and you do you, man. You do what you think is right for you, what feels good for you, what seems most agreeable to your perspective, and you just be you. I'll be me, I'll be my own authority, I'll do what's right in my own eyes, but you seem what you think, you, you go ahead and you be you. That seems reasonable, until it obviously isn't, because none of us are good or right or wise. And we're going to be doing ourselves in conflicting ways. And so we're going to be right back to the same root problem. Much trouble and much personal and community-wide trouble will result unless we can find an authority that is good and is wise and is right. And in a way, that's one of the issues that lies behind the book of 2 Corinthians. Who's in authority, particularly who's in authority over the church in Corinth, or for that matter, over any church? Who's in charge? And towards what end? What's that authority going to be used for? What's it going to be wielded to do? Is it going to be wielded to feed the one who's in charge, or maybe in some other way, is it going to be used to feed the ones who are being ruled over, to bless them? That's an active question behind this book. It's never exactly stated quite like that, but it's there throughout. It's behind the issues that are raised, and Paul lays his finger on it right away at the very beginning of the letter. He touches on the issue of authority. 
So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So we begin this book of 2 Corinthians that we're going to be looking at for the next several months by looking at verses 1 and 2. Let me read them, and then I'll draw two observations, one from each verse. 2 Corinthians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The introduction to the letter. Here's the first observation coming from the first verse. God, through his word, is the authority we must listen to and follow. God, through his word, is the authority we must listen to and follow. This letter begins like so many of Paul's letters usually do, which is really like letters of that day in, in, in the whole of the Greek world usually began. From so-and-so to so-and-so, greetings. Standard format. And, and that was usually followed with a, a paragraph or two of some introductory, complimentary words about those he was writing to, and then it came to the body of the letter. Well, that's the usual pattern. Paul usually follows that pattern, and he does here as well. But as we've often noted, we, we've preached a, a number of Paul's letters, and we talk about this often. Paul always takes that form and then turns it. He, he uses the basic form, but, but twists it to begin to lay the groundwork for where he's going in the letter, the kinds of issues that he's going to address. So it's always important to look closely at these verses and not just breeze through them. We, we commonly just fly right by, but we've got to stop and look and notice what's here. And here in 2 Corinthians, we have one of Paul's earlier letters, and we find something here that becomes commonplace as the decade plus of his ministry wears on. But it's, it's not so common early, but here we find it. Him laying his finger right out of the gate, directly on the issue of authority. I, Paul, am an apostle of Christ. That is, he's a sent one, a messenger. He's an emissary, dispatched with a message. That's what an apostle was, a, a messenger, an emissary. And, and the word apostle is not really a Christian word. It's just a word. And so it could be used in a number of different contexts. Someone sent from an authority with a message. And of course, that person's prestige or the, the, the weightiness of the messenger and the message would be directly derived from who it was that sent them. Paul's an apostle of Christ. One sent out by the Messiah King, whose name is Jesus, an apostle of Christ Jesus. We can read about how that happened in the book of Acts, and we can read Paul describing a few more of the reasons for it in Galatians 1, where he says that Jesus appeared to him specifically, visibly appeared to him, so that he could be an apostle. You see, one of the requirements for an apostle of Christ is that you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord. You're sent with a message that the heart of this message is Christ crucified and risen to pay for sin. And you had to be an eyewitness of the truth of that if you're going to carry that word. Paul hadn't seen the risen Lord 
but Jesus appeared to him specially and specifically so that he could send him out as an apostle. He qualified him to be a messenger. And then God went a step further to validate Paul's apostleship by performing miraculous signs on Paul and then through Paul by his words and actions. We can see some of that in the book of Acts too, where, where Paul, for instance, speaks to the blind, evil prophet, false prophet on Cyprus, and, and the man goes blind. That's God's power through Paul stopping evil. It wouldn't be evil power. That's God's power stopping evil through Paul. And then, for instance, we would see the power working for Paul to break him out of prison in, in Philippi. And what results from that is a, is a wonderful opportunity to talk about Jesus, which, again, would not be evil power at work to lift up Jesus. That would be God's power at work through Paul to testify to Christ. So God's validating Paul, and we see that in, in a few circumstances here and there. But perhaps most common of all is what we usually overlook. Less sensational, but for a long time, Paul traveled the world, spoke the message about Jesus, and people came to new life, were miraculously made different. That's the power of God using Paul again and again and again, many people everywhere. God using Paul. So God's made something abundantly clear. Paul, by the will of God, is Jesus' unique, appointed, sent messenger speaking in the power of God. And Paul's reiterating that here in this very first verse. This man carries the authority of God, and when he writes that message down, and preserves it for us like this letter of 2 Corinthians has come to us, it is as if God himself has written us a letter using Paul's pen. And therefore, this should be read, heard, contemplated, treasured, trusted, and obeyed given preeminence in our life, given the right to rule us and our hearts and our minds and shape our lives. What we're about to read here and consider is the authoritative word of God. And Paul is delivering it, it says, to God's church that is at Corinth. Word church, again, not a Christian word, just means assembly. A, a large group of people assembled, gathered together. It was used in secular society all the time. It's used often in the Bible to talk about God's people gathered or assembled in the Old Testament in various places, in the desert, for instance. Well, here, there's an assembly of God's people in this city in Corinth, as well as a few scattered throughout the surrounding region. Probably they had dealings with Corinth, and, but lived outside the city. So, this is God's word to the church. But notice carefully, it is not just to the Corinthian church. 
with like an adjective on there to modify, so as to give it a name or to clarify which church we're talking about. It's not a, it's not a modifier. It's a possessive. The church of God is actually God's church, apostrophe S. Possessive. Literally, it's God's assembly having its being at Corinth. There is, big picture, an eternal elect people that God gave to his son. You read about that in John 6. And that then the son, through, for instance, Paul, as we saw last week, is chasing down and calling in and gathering together, and some of them at the moment are assembled in Corinth. So the church universal, the church like big picture, universal and eternal, shows up locally in a specific time and place, like at Corinth or like here in Salt Lake. But the local congregation is part of a larger whole that is wholly made and wholly owned by God. So this is the will of God raising up and sending the messenger of God with the word of God to the church of God. There is a deep, wide, clear, profound statement of authority here. This is all his. Paul is an owned servant, and the church is a prized possession. We are not our own. We belong to him. Owned. God's church. And God stands in authority over us, and he exercises that authority through his word coming from his servant Paul. We stand, we kneel beneath. Verse 1. So why does Paul start like this? Because then, and now too, Christians and the church, we, we exist amidst a constant temptation, a constant lure, a struggle, a temptation to listen to the world and give allegiance to something else or to throw that out and become our own authorities and live, proceed, think, talk, and teach what we think is best and what seems right to us. That is a constant challenge. This letter is written now three years after Paul left Corinth, like we read about last week. And in those three years, he's been back, he's sent emissaries, he's written, and through it all, there is still some portion in this church in Corinth that does not accept Paul as their head leader, that is not willing to accept Paul's authority or his teaching is coming from God and binding on them. He just doesn't fit the bill for what they're expecting, for how, for how they think. He doesn't quite line up with what seems right to them or with what seems right in the eyes of other people who came afterwards and convinced them they should be looking for. 
As a result, the church in Corinth persistently, throughout its entire existence, the church in Corinth often struggled and often had stuff coming in from left and right and, and kind of rising up, bubbling up from within them. The, an, an array of worldly and natural perspectives and teachings that just weren't right. They never actually outright rejected Paul like, like the city of Corinth did. It was more of a, of a posture of, yeah, we hear what you say, Paul. Thank you. We hear you say such and such, and we are taking that into consideration. Thinking about it. And in the end, we've decided to go with this and that. But really, we are grateful for your counsel. We find it more reasonable, though. We find it more appealing. We find it more straightforward and simple. We find it more loving. We think it'd be more like Jesus would be. We, we think it's more helpful. It certainly is more attractive. We, we believe it would give us a better opportunity to connect with outsiders because they like this more too. So thank you, but we're going to go a different way. That was a, an abiding perspective amongst a strong minority in the church in Corinth for a long time. Not, not the majority, but a strong minority. And so there was always a turmoil in that place, and a host of topics were challenged and kind of, kind of modified or twisted or turned. Issues like wealth and prestige and certainly issues related to sexuality. They show up in the letters, from Corinth, letters to Corinth as constantly points of challenge and, and discussion and dispute. That was Corinth. And that sort of thing happens in the church today, too. In the minds of people around the church, in the minds of Christians, too. We wrestle with that and aren't sure how to respond. Who decides what the Christian life and what the Christian church is and what it teaches and what it believes, what it furthers and what it forbids? Do you think of the church? And as I say this, I expect a number of us to say, well, no. So then come back around and say, okay, do you function like that? Do you think of the church as an organization, a social organization that people come to, meet, check out, and appreciating the music and, and liking some of the, the opportunities and clicking with the people, join. Like you join a club or a co-op or something. Willing to help, e eager to be a part of it, but also now becoming a stakeholder with some say in the direction. People function in the church like that. And it's easy to get confused because, in fact, we do have to make decisions. We're going to have votes on stuff in congregational meetings. We're going to debate things. We do have people who become members optionally so after choosing. So there are some similarities, and it's easy to get confused. But above all that, we need to remember this and we and I, it is God's. It's God's church. And we're God's people. 
He sets the direction. He determines the standards. And he determines our goals and our methods and our leadership and our values. We're going to make decisions about how to structure the church and, and who to put in this position and that. But we always must do that with his lordship, his lordship in mind. And we don't have any right to do or to say or to teach anything that's contrary to him or to supplement it with anything that's coming from the outside world that seems palatable but doesn't match. Even if it's natural and even if it's attractive, we have to set it aside. He is our authority, not us, not the world around us. And that may cause trouble. Pick those issues. We're not going to talk about them this morning. They'll come up at different times. But pick the issues of wealth and prestige and sexuality. Does the world have an opinion on that today? Oh, my goodness, yes. And it's not what the Bible says. There's no way around that. We are going to be under the authority of something with which largely the world disagrees. So be it. Now, we don't need to be offensive, or I hope not. We need to be clear. We're owned. We lack options here. We are people under orders. He speaks to us then. How? Through his word, through the Bible. Unlike these folks, we don't, we don't have Paul walking around. Paul's not going to come visit and talk to us. But exactly like them, we do have this letter of 2 Corinthians. And so we have to hear it and listen to it. And we have 1 Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians and so on. Paul's word to us is God's word to us. Binding and authoritative. That's why God raised up Paul and sent him to speak to us so that we would hear the mind, the will, the purpose, the goal, and we would hear God. He gave us Paul to teach us and gave us Paul to show what it looks like to walk out this walk. And so we should be eager to hear it and quick to trust it and obey it. We have no choice in the matter whatsoever. So hear it like this then. and Let me lean on this a little bit. This God is a limitless, could even say authoritative, authoritarian could even say a dictator, and that what he speaks is and must be. And we can't do anything about that and don't have any say in the matter. We didn't vote for him and we can't recall him. We can't get away from it. He's an absolute authority over us and demands that we follow and obey his word. I'm kind of leaning on this. And, and I, I mean, you could say like, oh my, I mean, I could probably think of some ways to say that even heavier and even deeper and even more. But that's pretty... An authoritative, authoritarian dictator. That's pretty. And that's exactly what we fear in authority. To be pinned down by it. Stuck. Not free. 
This is the worst possible news. That that's who God is? That's the worst possible news. Exactly what I feared. Or it's the best possible news. Exactly what you secretly hoped for. If if this authoritarian authority is right and wise and especially if he is good. And that's what takes us to verse 2. The second observation. God has exercised his authority to bestow on us astonishing blessing. God has exercised his authority to bestow on us astonishing blessing. Astonishing. Just like verse 1, verse 2 features some elements of a typical letter greeting the Greek world, but this time added in with some, some, a bit of common Jewish greeting, a peace. But Paul has adjusted this to make a very Christian statement that neither the Greek world nor the Jewish world would, would ever think to say. He has two blessings listed here, which really are a compound blessing, one leading to the other, that comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father and God the Son both bestow this blessing. It comes from them both. And what we see listed here are two of the three persons of the one triune God. So we don't, we don't have the Holy Spirit specifically mentioned here, but this is how the New Testament commonly reveals to us the, the triune nature of God. By putting Father and Son next to each other in, in this particular way. When Paul is speaking and, and he calls Jesus Lord as distinct from God, see, it's God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not, and the New Testament when it talks about this all the time, is not setting apart Jesus away from deity. You got God and then you got Jesus. No, it's, it's simultaneously doing a couple things. It's affirming the triune nature of God and keeping clear to make, make, to affirm for us that there are not two gods. There's not God the Father and the God Jesus, two of them. No, it's only one. But the Father and the Son are not identical. So you've got one, two, two, one. If the Spirit were to be discussed here, we'd have three, one. But they're listed separately and titled distinctly because of the need to keep separate and together, separate and together. But Lord, of course, is just as much a divine name as God is, just as much a divine title as God is. If you look through the Old Testament, which of course shapes the language of all the Jewish people who became Christians in the New Testament, like Paul, the Old Testament is their Bible. They're taking language from the Old Testament. And Lord, everywhere in the Old Testament, is talking about God. Jot down, for instance, Isaiah 45, verse 22. Look at it later, but I'll read it now. Isaiah 45, verse 22. Turn to me, 
and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other, only one God. By myself I have sworn, and my mouth has gone out in righteousness, from it a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue swear allegiance. Every tongue confess. What will that tongue confess? That only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. Isaiah 45, verse 22 and following. That's, that's God, the one and only, the Lord, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Where does that get quoted? By Paul in Philippians about Jesus, the Lord. Lord's a divine title too. The Lord Jesus is just as much God as God our Father. And together, this one God reigning in authority over the church has used that authority to do what? To give grace to you. Paul pronounces it as true a fact, and it's an abiding fact. It is not just that once in the past there was grace for you, but it's grace to you. Going forward, know this and enjoy this forever because God has decided to treat us in this manner to give grace. The first thing we need to hear, the most important, most persistent, most easily forgotten, and yet most powerful truth about God's relationship with his church, with his people over whom he is authority, is summed up by one word, not, not a word of, of rule, not a word of control, not a word of subjugate, not a word of, of dominate, not a word of command, but a word, a word, grace. This is astonishing. Part of, part of our difficulty is that if this is not like new information to you, then it very easily becomes kind of a core, common element of the faith, and, and we skip on by it. But this is astonishing. Grace to you. Grace is the giving of something good that we do not deserve. And given that we are creatures made, we don't deserve anything. But every person on the earth has been born and grown up and lived under the, the grace of God, giving so much, sustained in physical life, provided what we need, all of humanity given much grace, material provision and relational connection and the ability to experience and perceive even the smallest of little joys and, and to, to dive into and explore and then understand mysteries that are, that are satisfying to the mind and, and delightful for the senses this, this list could go on forever, but just think, there are sunsets and we can perceive them. That there is food 
that we can taste and enjoy, and it satisfies us and makes our bodies feel alive. That is astonishing grace to every human on the planet. But in all of these graces, humans have proven themselves remarkably ungrateful and presumptuous. Pride is foolish, and it's human. And so what we've brought ourselves in our pride is what we do deserve from God, wrath and judgment, alienation from him and from the fountain of grace. But then what verse 2 is really pointing at, not just what has happened to all of people on the earth, but God's unique grace to his church as he's chosen to overcome our sin and reconcile us to himself and make peace with us in Christ. You know the story. Consider it. And, and maybe, if you're younger, you need to think about it perhaps freshly for yourself. Or maybe if you've been raised around it, you need to let it, to let it kind of wash over you and, and come to, to soak in and consider who you really are and what grace really is and what God has used his authority to do to you, for you. While we were still sinners, rejecting the grace of God, presuming upon it and rejecting it rather than yielding to it, the Lord, to one, the one to whom we owe all allegiance, the Lord God humbled himself and became like a man and submitted himself to our authority, and we somehow or another thought it wise to crucify him. He submitted himself to death on a cross to make payment for human sins in the place of humans. God's provision of a substitute sacrifice, a sacrifice in our place for our sin, grace. And the fact that he opened your eyes to see it is grace. Most people don't. And the reason you believe it is grace. The, the fact that this payment was applied to your case and your sin was paid for is grace. That you were forgiven when your sin was paid for and given new life in union with this one is grace. You are at peace with God, his friend now. You are a friend of God by grace. You've been given his spirit now so that he actually lives in you to help you live this new life, to walk with him and to enjoy the inheritance that he's promised to you. Grace. Sin's binding power so that you cannot walk with him 
broken. Grace. A future free of sin altogether so that you will not ever again be tempted to walk away from him. That's coming in your future by grace and assured of enough provision and protection to make it home to that place. That's grace. The fact that it exists, the fact of heaven, the fact of of a place, of of a life with him forever, grace. The heavenly home, that it is renewed, made fresh, right, clean, forever, guarded, never to be soiled, stained, wrecked again, is grace. And the immutability of all of that, the fact that your sin can't wreck it and that God's mind won't change, that he won't turn away and forget you, is grace. Christian, church, your life is made and covered and assured by the sovereign authority of the authoritative one, God over you, as he has decided of his own will and power to make you, little old frail you, little old fallen and fickle and sinful and and twisted and marred and broken and crooked you. He's decided to make you an object of grace forever. That is astonishing. That is astonishing. No way on earth that should be, but it is on earth and it will be in heaven. A privilege that is yours alone in Christ alone because God chose to give it to you. Grace to grace. That's the word that sums up your life. Soak this up and use it. Wield it as the powerful weapon that God means for it to be. Here's our problem. Is that I probably said 90% of the stuff that I just said to 90% of people who know 90% of it. But do you wield it as the powerful weapon that God means for that grace to be? It is not just stuff to know. It is a weapon meant to be used to deliver your restless and even hurting heart and confused and tempted soul to steady you in joyful peace. Grace to you brings peace. They go together. All that grace made peace with God in a moment when he saved you. And there is a coming day when there will be the shalom of God, the the environment of complete peace. But in the intervening years, God means for you to take up the fact of this grace like a sword in your hand and make peace, make peace. Wield it, use it, fight for it to make peace. Which is not just seat up on the ottoman at rest snoozing. It's rest in the soul. It's life and joy and hope and love. Peace. But you got to use it, this grace. He wants you to know it. That's, you know, word one. Grace. God wants Paul, God told Paul to begin the letter like this, to 
to make this really clear to us, and it is, it is everywhere. God wants us to know that for sure, wants us to be clear that that's how he's used his, his authority for us. But you got to use it. How? What, what do you mean by that? Use the grace. I don't mean use it as in abuse it. I mean use it here and here. Like this. Every one of us, in every day of our lives, will face some collection of offer from the world, bubbled up emotion or thought from our own hearts, maybe even direct evil temptation. We'll face all that kind of stuff every day, all your life. Yeah. And what you have to do, the Bible is going to talk actually about taking thoughts captive. you got to take what bubbles up there, what comes in, and go, got it. Now, what do I do with that? Well, I can't just hold on to it forever because my hands are going to fill up. There's going to be lots of stuff. i got to take that, and i got to put that somewhere. i got to put it beneath the authoritative God and his word that says to me, grace. i got to take that, and i got to submit it to the lordship of Christ. on the way. You take the offers, the temptations, the threats from the world, and you take all the past evidences of God's grace, and you remind yourself of them until they are sweet to you. They are meant to be a mosaic, an array, the evidence of God's faithful, steadfast love for you, which will not change today or tomorrow or forever. You take all that and you say, this is who God is. This is what God has done and will do for me. This is what he offers to me. This is his steadfast love for me. And along comes this offer. Hmm. I will submit that to Christ That's not easy. Unless and until this array, this collage of God's past grace is big and real and thick in your heart. But we're not talking about just looking back. This is past evidence of what is coming. Five seconds from now, five years from now, or 5,000 years from now, what is coming. Because this is the evidence that shows you that's who he is, that's how he's dealt with you, and that's who he'll be. We take this grace and we wield it by looking back and then looking forward in faith. Not saying, This offer, I shouldn't do it, I shouldn't do it, I shouldn't do it, I shouldn't do it. But saying this offer pales in comparison. Who wants it? Well, I do. Unless and until this is big and thick and wide, and that is real, real as can be. That's a fight. It requires a weapon authoritative word from the authoritative spirit about the promise of grace. Take it 
wield it, use it, and fight for it, and fight with other people. You use grace given by God like that as His Spirit takes this first, foremost, most prominent truth, grace to you, and uses it to fight all the temptations and subject them to God. That's how we follow Him. The Christian life, you might, you might say, is a life of faith. Faith in what? Faith in this God who rules for grace to me. I see that in the past, and I see it with believing eyes in the future, and so I walk with him. That's the Christian life. Wield, use grace. Christian, this is your privilege. All because the sovereign Lord of the church made it so and makes it so and will one day fully make it so. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, would you give us help to use the promise of grace in our fight against sin and temptation and despondency and fear and confusion. Help us, please. Will you, over your people, here in this place and elsewhere, will you speak over us this message that you are the one who reigns, that you are wise, that you are good. Press it into us, cause us to believe it, and lead us into surrendered, faithful following. We trust this to you. We need you to do it, Lord. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.